Hi guys, welcome back to yet another edition of the Red Wall Podcast. I'm your host as usual. My name is Marcelo Inestrosa, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number 85 entitled Story By. In this, in this edition of the pod, I sit down with fellow screenplay writer Natalie Zayas Bazin. I thought we had a wonderful conversation, and I really hope that you guys enjoyed as much as I did. Welcome to the Red Wall, Natalia. It's a pleasure to finally have you here. Thank you for having me. Just in case my viewers have been sleeping through my most recent interviews uh, that I've been doing with specific writers, all of the writers that I've been interviewing on my podcast are not disabled. And I was dying to interview somebody who sort of had an understanding about what it was like to be a disabled screenplay writer. And if I'm being honest, I've wanted you on the podcast for a while. So I'm not going to say subconsciously I interviewed all these people to get to you. But if you, you know, you know, if you wanted to, you know, put that in your head, that's okay, too. So, Well, that's very um, sweet. Thank you. When you structure a story, where do you start? How do you, how do you structure a story? Well, that's an interesting question because that has to do with a learning disability that I have called nonverbal learning disability. As you're going to learn from this conversation, I have no problem putting sentences together, having coherent conversations, um, but my organization skills and all that is not great. So in terms of a story, it's very simple. I still think of stories as five paragraph essays. And so for me, there's, you know, a quote unquote introduction, which is my main idea. And what comes to me always are, you know, in a five paragraph essay, it's three main points, right? And in my case, it's three scenes that I must have three interactions that must happen, three lines that must be said, you know, so it's, it's usually built around that kind of idea. And then I almost always know my conclusion. So the basic genesis is the three paragraph essay. You don't structure a story in the general sense, like you don't do any outlines or anything like that. Anything that a traditional screenplay writer uh, would do. Not past the three-paragraph essay. I do with the outline of the three-paragraph essay, but anything more than that is just way too complex for my brain to understand. One thing that I was very, very intrigued with when you were so kind to send me um, some of your work a while ago, I love the way that you structure your action beats. They really impress me because you waste very, very little time. You just get right to the point. Have you always written like that or did you figure out a way to sort of refine your action beats as you as you got more experienced as a writer? No, I always wrote like that. And that is how I went from novel, uh, novel writing to screenwriting is because when I was a child, that's what you write. You write novel form or essay form or whatever. And I started to 
Well, actually, my my first memory was in a movie. My first memory was in Beauty and the Beast, and I was five years old. And the the only comparison I can make is the remake where they spend time explaining how Belle's mom died. And I thought that was a huge waste of time because my five-year-old brain had already figured out that she died in childbirth. Like there was just, it was such an obvious, no question, why are we wasting time on this? Don't ask me how at five years old I knew this, but I just did. I knew she died at childbirth and who cares? Um, so yeah, as a five-year-old, I was like, all right, I get it. Move on. Next, next thing. And similarly, my the issue that I always had in school was, you know, we had to write these essays and it was five pages on the Holocaust, 10 pages on the Salem witch trials, like whatever. And I was like, why? You can say it in three. So I was always just like, just like as ironic as it is, because I could talk forever, but in terms of telling a story, like I just get straight to the point, always have. Like I just, I like I'll read novels and I'm like, oh my God, just move on. It's pretty safe to assume that your action beats are at maximum three lines, right? I've never paid attention, but probably, yeah. You mentioned that you started out wanting to be a novelist because that's how I started out. I started out wanting to be a novelist. And then when I, uh, you know, you know, just a couple of weeks after I graduated high school, I was at home watching uh, TV and I came upon this, you know, show and it changed my entire life. I went from wanting to be a novelist to uh, wanting to be a screenplay writer. So, yeah, it's funny how life works out. Can you talk to me just a little bit about some of the challenges that you face from a physical standpoint uh, and how that affects your writing, if that affects your writing at all? Um, from a physical standpoint, it only affects my writing in the sense that I've gotten it, you know, the, the advice that I've received as a writer has been to write what you know, and I'm not sure if that's kind of pigeonholed me, but like what I write, um, is not necessarily what has happened to me, but it's at least hypotheticals that I think of, you know, and they all have to do with you know, if it hasn't happened to me, it's about what if this happened to me as a disabled person, you know, um, which is ironic in its own way, because, you know, we know each other and you know me that I'm not someone who really cares about representation. Like, it's not that it matters to me to have a disabled person. It's just that's where my inspiration comes from. My inspiration comes from, like, what if this happened to me? What if this happened to a disabled person? And it's just like, the, those situations that I think of, yes, they're hard on any normal average person, but they'd be even more devastating on someone with a disability. I don't write my characters disabled. And that was a sort of a sort of an unconscious choice for myself. But um, later this year, I'm going to actually write uh, a TV pilot that I believe I told you about one time. She has a disabled person in the lead and he is going to be semi based on my uh, high school experience. I just found it really 
refreshing that you came to me and you asked for my advice on on specific elements of uh, the Spanish culture that you put in your script. I found that I found that to be really really funny um, because of all the things that you could have asked me for. That was like the last thing that I was expecting for you to ask me for. Well, yeah, because it's 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 one of those things where it, it's very hard to find other people to relate. It's the only thing the the only thing the only other thing that I can relate it to is when I was growing up and when I was in therapy. Um, and obviously, the therapy that I was in was mostly having to do with my disability and how I was being treated and how I was being bullied. But there were some home issues that were going on. As I'm sure you know, there are things about the Latin slash Spanish culture that are different than the quote unquote American culture. And so like those things would also be happening to me. And though, like I was also dealing with those things and those things as a teenager, particularly when you're already dealing with um, bullying in school and stuff like that can also feel like bullying in a way, you know, like just becoming because we come from this tough love culture and the way that our parents talk to us and, and whatever. And so it just like at a certain age, it just feels like, you know, and, and so I would talk to my therapist about it and they completely related. And so I was able to confide in them in a way that if it was a quote unquote American therapist, they'd be calling CPS. Like they'd be like, this child's in an abusive home. And it's like, no, 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 it's not abusive. It's totally fine. Mm -hmm. It's just different. I remember a while ago, I, um, I invited a, a, a friend over for dinner before the world went to shit. And we, we were having dinner and, you know, we got to a point where we started talking really, really loud. And my friend or my guest didn't say anything to me. But after the dinner concluded and, you know, we got we got up and we went to my room and we did who knows what I can't remember. And he goes, so why were you why were you guys fighting? And I'm like that it wasn't fighting. That's talking. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm really sorry to hear that you were bullied in school because I I was very lucky that I've lived a very, very sort of sheltered life. I didn't have to deal with bullies in school. I mean, I had my issues because of my dystonia. I mean, I, my, my, my high school experience wasn't perfect, but compared to yours, what little I know of it, uh, mine was a, was a walk in the park. Well, that's the ironic thing is that my bullying didn't happen in high school. I loved high school. It was middle school. That's the thing is like, I keep coming across people who are like, I hated high school. I'll never go back. I'm like, I'd go back tomorrow. Like I loved high school, but it was middle school that I'm like, it was middle school. And I'm like, I'm homeschooling my children. I am. I'm not letting them go. They're animals. <laughs> if somebody came up to you tomorrow and said, listen, I'm going to give you X amount of money to do either a movie or a TV show. What would you want to do and why? Movie, definitely. Because, yeah, just because I don't. Um, again, it goes back to like what I like. It's weird to say my creativity has a limit, but it really does. Like I can only 
do so much and draw so much. That's why I write nonfiction. That's why I write what I know. You know, I have a friend of mine who wrote books about a mermaid and she created an, an entire J.R.R. Tolkien Middle Earth. You open it up and it's like she created the whole world, the grotto, the streams, the, the whole thing, the whole nine. And I'm like, what the like I just I can like my imagination does not stretch that far mm-hmm. you know like my imagination stretches as far as what if hypothetically I got raped and got pregnant that's one of my scripts that's what I wrote but that's that's still me you know I'm not outside of myself like that's what I mean when I say my creativity has a limit I cannot go outside of myself I can't like pull something out of thin air I think maybe that's why I like I trash Marvel I think secretly I just don't understand it I'm like uh I don't get it where what infinity stones what other countries other worlds other realms what's going on what what realm are we and what what like just no I'm a huge Marvel guy I love superheroes because I grew up watching Buffy Mm -hmm. and you know when you when you boil it down Buffy is a superhero. But I always get a kick out of uh, out of your tweets. I don't engage with your tweets when you like, are on those specific rants because I know if I do, I know what I'm going to get. I, I always appreciate people that are honest about their opinions regardless of what others may think of them. What do you think the chances of you actually ever getting anything produced I don't know. I like, I feel like it's by the day. Like some days I feel like totally 100%. And then some days I feel like never, nothing's going to ever happen. You know, like I'll read an article about a movie that's been in production hell for 10 years, you know, like, you know, I don't know. Like there was that movie, the little things that came out earlier this year and it was a really good movie. I liked it, but apparently it's been in production since the nineties, 30 years. Like, I don't think I have that kind of patience. Thankfully, we also live in a world where, like, you can kind of produce it yourself, which is why I have my short films. One of my lifelong ambitions is to start my own production company to give people like us an opportunity to make film and uh, make television. Because I don't know any other disabled writers besides myself and you. I am not the guy who is going to get up on a soapbox. We're going to have more disabled people in, in this role. We're going to have more disabled writers. And, and we, gotta, we just have to have more of us. I don't, right. I don't believe that. I believe in if you have a movie, you hire the best person that you can for the job. Whether that guy is disabled, red, orange, or blue. Right. I don't give a shit. If he can do the job, he's hired. And if he can do the right. job to my satisfaction, he's hired. With my quirks as a writer and my disabilities and my quote-unquote issues, um, I wouldn't be able to work in a traditional studio system. So that's why my love long dream is to become my own boss, which is right, which is crazy. Funny story, totally not related to writing at all. But when I was in high school. Um, I was taking a, um, uh, a, I think it was a course to, to, to prep for the SATs and mm-hmm. 
The guy who was teaching the course, for some reason, asked me to break down my normal day, right? And I told him everything I did. And he looked at me like I had two heads or three mm-hmm. heads. And I'm like, I, you know, I told him, why are, you looking, why are you looking at me like that? Because he goes, I can't imagine living in your shoes. And I'm like, dude, this is me. I, I don't know any other. I don't know any other way to live. Right. Know? So I don't understand normal people uh, who don't have disabilities look at us like we're, we're miracle kids. We're not. We're just people. I have a bit of a different perspective on that. And that may just be because my condition has changed over time and I've had multiple issues. So I walked with braces until I was about 12. And then I started using a walker from the age of 12 to about the age of 20. And then at the age of 20, I was mostly in a wheelchair, like 75%, but still like 25% in a walker. I could stand and reach and whatever. And then at the age of... 28 something like that was full-time wheelchair so I went through all of these changes and I kind of had that same mentality myself where every time that you know like for example now you know like I'll, I'll do things and I'm like how did I do this before you know like perfectly normal things I'm still learn relearning how to do You know, like I broke my femur last year and I can't bend my leg to put my shoe on. Like, how did I used to put my shoe on? Like, what? So I kind of, I do understand that mentality to a point of just like, and maybe this is just my own mental health speaking, um, that I, um, you know, that I, um, that I've reached that point several times where I've just like so much has happened to me. And, uh, you know, like I've had so many changes that I'm just like, if one more thing's happened, one more thing's happened, I'm going to lose my shit, you know? So like, I understand it. I understand it from an able-bodied person's perspective. Like they, you know, like we talk about movies and we talk about depiction of films and, you know, there was me before you and there's breathe. And, you know, those are films where the character chooses euthanasia and there's controversy over like the fact that, you know, the, the disability is the disability community says that able people, able-bodied people are saying our life is not worth living. And that is not what I think they're saying at all. Like, like to me as a disabled person, like what that is saying is that person is tired. That person is fed up. What that person goes through on a daily basis is not worth whatever little joy they have. You know, like I, I can't remember what it was. Well, some one of my friends on Facebook, they asked, like, what are what are some things about you that people wouldn't believe, you know, that people would be like, nah, you're lying. And so I just listed, like, I've just listed things that have, have come to me, you know, like things I've been through and they left me a comment and they're like, whoa, they're like, but you've had good things happen too. Right. And I didn't even answer. Cause I was like, you know what? 
Yes, but not, they don't counter the bat. They do not. Like, I'm not in a place, like, right now at 35, I cannot confidently say there is more good, there is more good than bad. No. Does that mean I'm suicidal? Does that mean I'm going to go to the bathroom and split my wrists? No, no, it doesn't. Don't worry. Don't send cops to my house. But I cannot confidently say my life is more good than bad. It's not. Would you just say then you're going through the motions then? 100%. 100%. And I was literally, my, one of my aunts is here from Mexico. My Half my family is Mexican, my mother's side. And uh, one of her sisters is here and she's married to a doctor. And I was telling her, I'm like, Thea, could you ask my deal about this antidepressant that I'm on? Because it's not working. You know, and I've been on antidepressants for years and years and years. But the thing is, I keep trying to figure out if they're ever going to work because I keep having conversations with doctors, neurosurgeons, neurologists, whatever. And they keep saying to me, Natalie, they're not going to work because your depression is circumstantial. You will not be happy until you wake up tomorrow and you're healthy. I mean, I don't want to speak for you. The way that my family works is that my grandfather, he raised me. He brought me, in a, he brought me home in a shoebox when I was two. And he's always said, you know, if you're depressed, and let's say the doctor prescribed me depression pills, those depression pills will only help me out momentarily. But if I want to pull myself out of the problem that I'm having... There's only one person on the planet that is going to be able to do that. And that's me. Nobody else is going to be able to help me. I've fought with depression, with thoughts of suicide, but I've never been on, I've never been on antidepressants. All that stuff, I've battled myself and I've dealt with myself for, for the good sometimes and for the bad sometimes. My family doesn't, traditionally believe in therapy. So that's one of the main reasons why I started doing my podcast because if you listen to the first two seasons of my podcast, all it is is complaining about my family. If you listen to the first two right. seasons, you will get a laugh because all it is is raging against right. them. Yeah. And, right. and you know, and and it's and it's based on conversations that I have with them and it's based on conversations that I have with people in and around my life. But for season two, I wanted to do, I wanted to do something completely different. I wanted to sort of get away from the negative and move towards the positive. I'm lucky that I'm lucky that my mom, you know, is more progressive, you know, and she has put me in therapy and she has recognized, uh, you know, what I've been through, I also had issues, you know, as a child, you know, in addition to my bullying and all that, I had crying fits as a teenager. And the, those were these episodes where I, I have an older sister. And so I, I would have these episodes where I would just cry for no reason, or what I thought was no reason, straight three hours, like three, four hours. And my older sister, you know, let's say I'm 12 and she's 16 and I'm sobbing and she's like trying to make me feel better. She's like, 
do you want to go out? Do you want to go to the mall? Do you want me to paint your hair? Do you, or do you want me to paint your nails? Do you want me to play with your hair? Do you want me to braid your Like she's coming up with all these suggestions and I'm just crying, you know? And, uh, and uh, it's just been a thing. Like I think, ever, I think ever since then, my mom has seen it and been like, whoa, this is a problem. You know, like this is someone who's going through some, some serious shit who is just having outbursts. And my father is the one who I don't have a relationship with anymore because he has more of the, the mentality that you're describing. When I got pricked in the spinal cord in 2014, um, in 2017, my older niece was born. I have a four-year-old niece and a four-month-old niece. And he came to visit. And at the time, my sister was living in a tri-level home. And uh, so I was on the bottom. They paid extra to make it a bedroom and a bathroom. And then you go upstairs and then it's the main living area. And then you go upstairs and it's the bedrooms. So when my dad was visiting, he would carry me up and down the stairs to go to the kitchen and eat and whatever. Now, I had been pricked in the spinal cord, so I'm spastic, right? I've had spasm issues for seven years. He's holding me in his arms, and I would spaz. And he would say to me, calm down, chill out, relax. And it was just like, that, that's who my dad is. My dad is mind over matter. Like, he thinks if you just concentrate and put your mind to it, you'll be fine. It's okay. And I'm like... I'm not doing it. I got pricked in the spinal cord. That spazzing that you feel is not voluntary. It's not me. Um, so that was the last time I spoke to him because I just got so fed up of his thinking that everything was me. Everything was my fault. Everything was voluntary that I didn't want to get better. You know, he has this idea that I didn't want to get better. Or that I don't need things. I had I had to have a surgery when I became wheelchair bound. I don't want to get into it because I don't want to girl this out your listeners. But I told him about it just to keep him in the loop. And he was like, is that necessary? Have you tried this? Have you tried that? Have you tried this? And I was like, dad, I've tried everything. This is normal for someone in my condition. And in fact, I'm ahead. When I became wheelchair bound at 20, they were shocked. They were like, I can't believe it took you this long. Like that is the general normal prognosis for people with spina bifida. For him to be like, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. I held out as long as I could. As, as someone who is spastic, there, there are days when I wake up and I, you know, I have trouble walking because my spasticity is kicking my ass. And no matter what I try to do, it just doesn't work. And I feel like shit. My living situation, I have to basically deal with my pain and manage my pain in the best way that I can. Because my grandfather is not going to let me stay in bed all day. And that's the thing is like, you know, now I'm with my, you know, I've always lived with my mom. And thankfully that was just my dad visiting. But, um... If I, oh my God, if I had to live with my dad, we'd kill each other. Can you just explain to me what is your obsession with 90 Day Fiance and reality television? Because I don't get it. It's like you could be watching, you could be watching 
anything and you're rotting your brain out with reality television and 90 Day Fiance, can you please explain that to me? It's very simple. The problems in my life are not chosen. This isn't my fault. These idiots are choosing to bring that mess into their life. All right. This dumpster fire, they chose it. So I'm just watching them. I just like to watch people make stupid decisions and then realize they were stupid decisions. Like, I'm just laughing at them. I'm like, hey, this isn't my fault. I feel good about myself because my disability, I didn't do it to myself. You did it to you. In other words, it's therapy. Okay. Yeah, it is kind of therapy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, my therapy is just watching Star Trek and science fiction, but I, 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 I can't stand reality television. I really, I really can't because I just want to, like, like anytime somebody starts talking about reality television, I just want to walk up to them and smack them in the face. I, it's so weird. I never thought that I would get into it, but it's like, it's, it's very specifically, and then this might have something to do with like where my mindset is at that I'm 35 and not married without kids, whatever. Like it's, it's all relationship based. It's 90 day fiance. It's married at first sight. It's so I think it's a subconscious sort of like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, I'm supposed to be having fights with in-laws. I'm supposed to be, you know, having kids. I'm supposed to be whatever. I'm not supposed to be breaking my femur supposed to be, you know, trying to make my legs stay on my wheelchair, you know, like these are not normal problems that a 35 year old should be having. That's like what a 90 year old has, you know? So like there's, there's a weird psychology in like, I feel normal. I I think that at this point in my life, I think that I'm, that I just want to live my life the best way I possibly can. And if romance comes into it, at some point, I will accept it. Everyone who I've shown romantic interest uh, in in my entire life has rejected me. So right. I, I've, I've got nothing, nothing but rejection. If it happens, it happens. I will be the happiest person on the planet because I am a hopeless romantic. I am. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin Williamson. Damn you. First, It was supposed you. to be Jocelyn and Joey, damn it. Here's an interesting story that I don't believe I've told you. I actually, the first time I saw the uh, series finale for Dawson's Creek, I was so upset that a couple of days later before I started college, I wrote a MySpace message to Kevin Williamson. I wish that I would have kept that email because he said something to the effect of, you know, based on everything that the writers had done before, that it would have been a disservice to have to have Joey end up with Dawson. But he said, listen, in in my heart, it's always going to be um, uh, Joey and Dawson together. That's a lie. And a the lie. reason I know that that's a lie is because I watched The Vampire Diaries. And I know, I know. Julie Plath worked with him, and she used yeah. to be like a writer's assistant on Dawson's Creek. I know. And she takes over and ruins fucking everything. And then Kevin comes in at the last minute because they're like, Kevin, come write the last episode. And he has to look at everything that she's done for six fucking seasons. And he's like, oh, fuck, you fucked up my show. 
<laughs> it's, it's, it's a combination of giving into the fans, giving into the actors, um, and not doing what you want. And that's what Kevin needs to do. He needs to be like, fuck you, this is my show. I'm doing what I want. And it, and it really makes me upset because I, you know, I watch Kevin's shows because it seems like he has a good grasp on what a healthy relationship is. It's everyone else who doesn't. But do I know my big problem with Kevin? And I love Kevin. He's my hero. He's the reason why I'm, he's the reason why I'm a screenplay writer. He has a he has a propensity to leave his shows after a certain point and go on and right. do something else. That shit really fucking pisses me off. If I ever create a TV show, I am not fucking leaving. I am either going to stay on that show until it flies or until it's or until it fucking sinks into the ground. They're going to have to they're going to have to fucking drag me off of that show. The thing is and, and I don't know if this is a humility thing, but he leaves because he sees the show doing well. So he's like, oh, we're doing well. It's in good hands. I can go. I can do something else. And he doesn't realize that he's the magic in Greek. So I gather that you didn't approve when Greg took over Dawson's Creek after season three then, right? I would say no. No. I mean, I guess it depends on what you were. I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole psychoanalysis, right? We could yeah. look at season three and we could argue that they finally started acting like teenagers. Let's look at seasons one and two and like what really happened? Nothing. So, and then in season three, things started happening when they brought in Eve and when they brought in, like they started doing teenager things. You know, Love Triangle is very teenagery. I don't know. I didn't think it made for a very good show. Now as an adult, I watched Dawson's Creek and then I watched One Tree Hill. And then I watched Vampire Diaries, who I became as a person, the people that I would hang out with would be the One Tree Hill kids and the Vampire Diaries kids. I would not be friends with the Dawson Trees kids because they don't leave their goddamn house. Like I would be like, I would be Andy. I'd be the one being like, let's go to the dance. Let's go to the game. Let's go here. Let's go there. Like they would be the most boring bunch of pain in my ass. <laughs> I would definitely hang out with Dawson, Joey, Pacey, and Jen because I always loved that they talk like they're 40. I get that too. I don't have anything against that. I'm talking more about my personality. If those other shows hadn't come out, I would be friends with them and that would be what my friends are like and whatever. Just to give you kind of an antidote to that, um, I have friends here where I live and they, um, I was busy with other projects and stuff and it was a group and they did their own short films. And this guy, that's the reason he put the group together is because he wanted to make short films with actors and writers and directors and whatever. And I got busy with my own stuff. So I wasn't able to, to help them. But then all of a sudden I get an invitation to the screening of the film and my friend Desiree is the main actress. And she, and I go with her and I go with her boyfriend and we go to the screening and we watch it and we hang out and we talk to people, whatever. Afterwards, I'm talking to my friend Desiree and she tells me that her boyfriend told her that I was the most normal girl in the room next to her. 
Like he was like, he said something along the lines of like those cinema weirdos, except for your friend, Natalie. Like he was, he was like, your friend, Natalie's the only one that knows how to have a conversation. She's the only one that knows how to like socialize and communicate. Mm. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know what I'm talking about? Real cinema introverts. I'm a screenplay writer and I love film, but I can still talk to people. I'm not completely introverted. When you want to write a character who speaks another language, um, do you use a standard method of parentheticals or you just like put a little note before you start writing the dialogue for that character? I actually read somewhere that you're supposed to put the other language in italics. That's what that's what I seem to remember. Um, but you may be right. You, it may be that it's parenthetical. And then that means that it's going to be, I can't remember right now, but all, all I remember is learning that it's italics. Uh, when, when I was taught uh, screenplay writing by uh, the worst, uh, well, I'm not the worst screenplay writing teacher on the planet, but not the best either. That, that if I wanted to uh, write a character who wasn't speaking English, the best way to indicate that uh, would be using uh, parentheticals. And, in, and inside the parentheticals, you say spoken in Spanish or whatever language, and then you just write that in English. Mm-hmm. And then the script supervisor will take care of it. I mean, that, that may be true. I mean, things, I mean, I don't know how long it's been since you were with that teacher. Things that may change. Yeah. Things yeah. that may change when I learned things. It's been a while. I actually spent 15 years on one particular story and I uh, recently met someone who is helping me streamline that story and finally getting uh, getting it to a place where I'm happy with it. By the way, never, never work on one fucking thing or, uh, or iteration of one fucking thing for 15 years because it will drive you up a fucking wall. Never do that. You know I haven't because I sent yeah. you my thing and I was yeah. like, and I've got really the beginning, short. I've got the end, fill in the middle. Like that's my biggest thing as a film, as a, as a writer is, as a writer. I know what I want. I know what the ending to be. I just don't know how to get there. And that's what I always send you. I'm like, all right, this is how it starts. This is how it ends. How do I get there? I, like, cause I've literally, I've gotten, criti- I've, I shouldn't say criticism, feedback from people. And I agree with it but I just don't know a way out. Like I will acknowledge like, yeah, that's a problem, but also like, that's what I find. That's what I find a lot about like getting advice from people is like, they'll tell you what's wrong, but they won't tell you how to fix it. it. And that's where I get sucked. I'm like, dude, tell me how to fix it. Well, my problem is I have no problem writing a 60 page script or a 77 page script. But after that, It's sort of rewriting with my brain and making it make sense. My problem is, is that somebody will write me and be like, I want more on this. And I'm like, why are you retarded? Like, why? Like, I don't know how to expand. Thank you so much for being on. If you ever write something and you want, you know, useless feedback for, from, from somebody who probably won't be able to help you. Uh, you uh, basically, you can send me anything you want, but just uh, send me a DM to let me know that you send me something. Okay.
sounds good and it's not useless. Anything that is not my, you know, anything that is another set of eyes is helpful. All right, guys, that'll do it for this edition of the Red Wall Podcast, episode number 85, entitled Story By. Once again, as I do every week, if you like anything I do here, I would appreciate a comment, a like, or subscribe on whatever podcast service you happen to be listening to me on at this very moment. But as I often say, until next time, I'll see you when I see you.